Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favour that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. Because of faith, you freely, willingly and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Well, good morning, church. That was from Martin Luther's famous commentary on the book of Romans. This week, 500 years ago, Luther, Martin Luther walked the half mile or so between his home and the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed up his 95 theses that claimed that salvation came by faith alone and not by the works of the law, and in so doing, he changed history. As you can see from that quote, Luther believed that faith works together with the Holy Spirit to bring about spiritual change in our hearts. If there is a secret, so to speak, of Christian growth, that is it, faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. I told you before a few weeks ago that Christians and churches like ours aren't really quite sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. We know that he is in there. We're just not sure exactly what he does. And we often relate to him. I explained to you the way that most people relate, for example, to their gallbladder. Um, I know that it's in there. I know that it's important. I'm glad that it gives me, I guess, gall for whatever purpose gall has um, in me. But um, I don't really relate to my gallbladder. Um, and that's how people feel about the Holy Spirit. It's like, I'm glad he's in there, but what does he do? Um, there was, uh, I had a friend or a guy here at our church that came here for several years and became a good friend of our family who had a, an ongoing struggle with sin that just, I mean, he'd, he'd, get a, he'd get past a little bit, then he'd just sort of get dragged back into it. And he was pretty discouraged. And it um, doesn't matter how many books we read or how many accountability groups he was in, he never really seemed to be able to shake this thing that just held him captive. And um, he, something took him away. He moved out west and um, I got together with him a year or two later and he um, came to visit my family at our house. And from the moment I set eyes on him, I could tell things were different. And uh, I said, well, man, tell me what's happened. He said, well, man, God has finally given me deliverance through the, of, of this thing. And I said, well, how? What was it that you learned? He, tell me about your new church that you're going to. What did they teach you there that we didn't teach you here? And he, uh, he said, well, man, it wasn't really anything new that I learned. He said, it's just that at this new church, this new ministry I was a part of, he said, the Holy Spirit for these people was like a real person. Uh, he said, at our church, I love our church, but the Holy Spirit was kind of this mystical force in the background. He said, but these people, when they got up in the morning, they thought and they talked to the Holy Spirit and they, 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 they sensed his, his movements in their life and they were, they were clinging to him. And he said, it wasn't really anything new that I learned. It was that I learned, if anything, I just learned to lean on the real presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, see, Paul in Galatians chapter 5 is going to show us what role the Holy Spirit plays in our spiritual development. So if you got your Bible this weekend, and I hope that you brought one, if you'll take it out right now and open it to Galatians chapter 5. Now in Galatians 5, Paul's going to show us that the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for spiritual growth. 
And he's going to show us how we are supposed to access his power and his presence in our lives. Now, let me give you a warning real quick. This is a very familiar passage if you've been in church at all. It's where Paul lists out the fruits of the Spirit. And the problem with familiar passages is that quite often they go right in one ear and out the other, and you can miss what's really being taught here. So I want you to try as much as possible to, to put all the things you know about this passage out of your mind, and let's just read it, um, read it fresh, okay? We're going to start this discussion about the fruits of the Spirit actually back at the end of chapter 4, because Paul begins his discussion there about how the Holy Spirit brings about change in our lives. At the end of chapter 4, Paul returns again to the story of Abraham, as he's done throughout the book of Galatians, um, as an example of the right and wrong ways to pursue spiritual growth. Now, Abraham, of course, was the biological father of the nation of Israel. But when we first encounter Abraham in Genesis 12, he's a childless old man in his 80s who is married to a sterile old woman in her 70s. And that is when God appears to them and promises them that they will give birth to a son who will father a nation who will bring salvation into the world. Now, that's a pretty big promise for a childless octogenarian, yet Abraham believes it. And when Abraham believes it, two things happen, Genesis tells us. First, Abraham's faith was credited judicially as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 says that when Abraham believed the promise, he was justified, that is, righteousness was credited to his account. Second, Genesis tells us he, uh, Abraham and Sarah's old sterile bodies were infused with reproductive life. And Paul finds in this the perfect illustration for how you and I are saved today. In Galatians 3, he explained that just like with Abraham, when we believe God's promise, that Jesus, who was great, great, uh, Abraham's great, 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 great grandson, um, when he believed that he brought salvation into the world, just like God promised that he would, then our faith is credited judicially as righteousness and spiritual life is infused into our old, dead, sin-sick hearts. So it's the same way that Abraham was saved. That's the way that we're saved. Now, at the end of chapter four, Paul's gonna pull out another detail from Abraham's life that illustrates the mistake that he sees the Galatians making. Here we go, verse 21. Tell me, tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you actually hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One was by a slave and the other was by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. All right, here, here's the story that he is referring to. Abraham um, and Sarah, when they believed the promise that God would give them a son, here's the detail you got to get in your mind. They did not get pregnant immediately. In fact, if you go back and read the book of Genesis, there was a 25-year gap between when God made the promise in Genesis 12 that they would have a son and when Sarah actually got pregnant. Now, 25 years is a long time to wait for a son when you're a newlywed. But when you are in your 90s, it probably feels like an eternity. And so sometime in that 25-year process, think about 15 or so years in, um, Sarah decided that it was time to help God out a little bit. So she brings out her household servant, Hagar, who was young and beautiful. And she says to Abraham, she said, listen, God has promised us that we'd have a son who'd give birth to a nation. And clearly that is not happening with me. So maybe you should have one with her. Now, listen, what is she doing? She hadn't quit believing the promise. She still believes that God's going to give them a son. She just thinks that it's on her to make it happen. 
in other words. She is attempting to fulfill the promise of God through a scheme of the flesh. So she brings out her beautiful servant to Abraham. Interestingly, Abraham doesn't make much of a counter argument. Uh, He's like, okay, if you say so. Um, He seems to have more issues here than lack of faith. But um, shortly thereafter, Hagar gets pregnant by Abraham and they call their son, Abraham and Hagar's son, Ishmael. Ishmael will himself grow up to father a great nation, but not the nation of promise. And this, the apostle Paul says, is exactly what the Galatians are doing when they try to turn to the law to bring them closer to God. He said, you are attempting to fulfill the promise of God through a scheme of the flesh. You're trying to help God out. Like Sarah, you haven't stopped believing God's promise of salvation. You just think it's on you to accomplish it. And Paul's going to draw two really important lessons from this story of Abraham and and Hagar. The first one is this, God is much abler to accomplish his promise than we are. In verse 27, Paul's going to quote an Old Testament prophecy about Sarah from the prophet Isaiah, in which um, Isaiah says this, look at this, for it is written, rejoice childless woman, that's Sarah, unable to give birth, burst into song and shout, you who were not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman, that's Sarah, will be many more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband, which is a reference to Hagar. In other words, barren Sarah will ultimately be more fruitful than beautiful Hagar. Now, you would never think that, of course, looking at the two of them. One of them looked like the ideal picture of motherhood. She was perfect for great potential for childbearing. The other had no potential at all for childbearing, but God chose the one with no potential to accomplish his promise. And Paul says that is the good news of the gospel. God doesn't need any potential from you to work miracles in you. It's like the prophet Zechariah said, it's not by might, not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Which means this weekend you might think that you have no potential, but it's not about you anymore. It is about Christ in you. Uh, One of my favorite promises, this reminds me of one of my favorite promises about the Holy Spirit. It's in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus was talking about his favorite preacher. Now, I think we've been over this before, but um, according to Jesus, who was the greatest preacher ever to live? Who was it? That's what starts with J, rhymes with on the Baptist. John the Baptist is a great guest. John the Baptist was Jesus' favorite preacher. He loved John the Baptist. He podcasted John the Baptist. Well, evidently, John the Baptist was preaching somewhere, and so um, uh, Jesus was talking about him, and he said to his disciples, surely I tell you, there's nobody born among women who is greater than John the Baptist. He's the best of the best. Then he turns to them, and he says, yet I tell you, I tell you, the one who is least in my kingdom is greater than John the the Baptist. Now, least in my kingdom, least in my kingdom means has the least potential, right? It means means you have the least spiritual gifts. It means you're the least talented. It means you're the least impressive when we look at you, right? Least in the kingdom. There is somebody listening to me right now at one of our campuses who is the least in the kingdom of heaven in the Summit Church, right? I'm not trying to be mean, but mathematically that has to be true. Right? I mean, right now you're thinking, I think it might be me. And God in heaven is going, yep, it's you. You're at the bottom of the pile. Jesus is saying, even if that were true, even if that's true of you, and even if you're correct about that, you have more potential in ministry than John the Baptist. 
Why? Because you have something John the Baptist never had, and that is the Holy Spirit permanently fused to your soul. And that, that for, therefore, it is no longer about the abilities that you bring into ministry. It is only about your availability. It is not about you anymore. It is about Christ in you. That means it doesn't matter what you bring into this place, whether you come from the most jacked up background or your resume is a litany of failures. Maybe you're a high school dropout or you've been in prison or you've had an abortion or you're a divorcee or you've been fired from your job or you've had an alcohol problem. Maybe all of those things are true of you all at once. God can still bring about his promise through you no matter how spiritually barren you feel because it's not about you. It is about Christ in you. You plus Christ equals everything, all right? Yeah, yeah, you should say amen right now. I'll say it myself, amen, all right? You see, if God can make something out of Abraham, whom the Bible describes as as good as dead, then he can make something out of you. Granddaddy Abraham has proved that God isn't done with any of us. Second, Paul says, what we learn is that those who are saved by grace will always be hated by those seeking salvation by the law. Verse 29, but just as then, but just as then, the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, um, so also the same is true to now. Ishmael's descendants would become the sworn adversaries of Israel all throughout the Bible. In almost every book of the Bible, they are the enemies of Israel, and that continues all the way down to this day. Interestingly, Muslims around the world proudly claim Ishmael as their spiritual father. And Islam is a religion that from start to finish teaches you that you are saved by obedience to the works of the law. It's how well you do and how much you do that determines whether Allah will receive you. Paul predicts that any who rely on obedience to the law, whether we're talking about Judaizers in Paul's day, the Catholic church in Martin Luther's day, Muslims in our day, or even legalistic Christians in our own churches today, he predicts that they will hate and resent those who rely solely on the promise of grace for salvation because the gospel of grace says to them, all your striving, all your zeal, all your knowledge, all your works does not bring you one whit closer to God. You are powerless to do anything that accomplishes your salvation. Salvation belongs only to God and you can only receive it as a beggar by faith and receive it as a gift from him. And see, all that leads us into chapter five. All that leads us into chapter five where Paul starts his conclusion to the whole book of Galatians. Now, let me give you a warning. It's a long conclusion. Uh, it's gonna take us a couple weeks to get through it. It's a long conclusion because Paul is at heart a pastor. And when pastors say in conclusion, they're only about halfway done with their sermon. Uh, you know that. I bet you, however, nobody ever gave Paul a hard time about his countdown clock going over five minutes over. So uh, I'm just saying, um, here, here we go. Chapter five, verse one. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why did Christ set us free? He set us free for freedom. Freedom for what? What's he talking about? It's the freedom of love. When you love to do something, you don't need a law to command you to do it. Last week, we talked about the dilemma of the great commandment. The dilemma of the great commandment is that we're being commanded to do something, to love God with all of our heart, love other people as much as we love ourselves. We're being commanded to do something that by definition cannot be commanded. Because if you love something, you don't need to be commanded to do it. And if you don't love it, then no command can actually change that. And if you remember last weekend, I used the rather gross analogy or a couple weekends ago, the rather gross analogy of vomit. You complained about it. Here I am using it again. Um, you, and I told you that you don't ever need to be commanded not to eat or touch vomit. 
right? You don't need a command to do that. You find it disgusting. If you encounter a pile of it out there on the sidewalk as you're leaving today, you don't try to see how close you can get to it because, ooh, I just want to be close to it, but I don't want to touch it because that'll break the law. No, you don't do that. You think it's disgusting, so you naturally stay away from it. Right? So you don't need a command to, to make you do what you hate to do. On the other hand, I never have to be commanded to eat prime rib. I love it. You put it in front of me, it'll be gone in a matter of seconds. We'll see what God is wanting to do is free us so that the desires of our heart are in line with what he wants. He changes our hearts in the gospel so that we love him, so that obeying the great commandment feels to us like freedom. And how does he do that? He does that by faith in the gospel. So Paul says, stand firm in that faith. That's where the power is. And don't go back into the law. Don't go back to Hagar. Scholars point out that the phrase stand firm right there um, is is an explicitly military term. Paul is talking about fighting, fighting to stay in the faith. What he means is that unless we are actively keeping ourselves in that faith, we're going to drift back into works righteousness or the idea that, that, that we are the ones that have to bring ourselves closer to God and we're the ones who produce spiritual life in our hearts. Martin Luther, in reflection on this, said that we got to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves because our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. We're like a car that's severely out of alignment. The moment that you take your hands off of the wheel consciously, you will always drift off into the ditch of works righteousness. And so you've got to constantly fight to keep yourself in the understanding that God's acceptance of you is a gift that he gave to you in Christ. Paul says, verse two, take note, take note, I, Paul, um, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. In other words, If you go back to trying to do something yourself to get closer to God, you're actually cutting yourself off from the power of grace. You're turning back to Hagar. You're removing yourself from the power of the promise. In other words, he's saying you circumcisers are cutting off a lot more than you realize. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters, all that matters is faith working through love. That's it. That's what God is producing in you. He wants to produce in you a new heart that loves the right things, a heart that hates the spiritual vomit of sin and loves the prime rib of righteousness. And that love is produced not through a list of what you must do, whether that is circumcision or anything else. It is produced by soaking in the truth of what Jesus has done. It is faith in the gospel that produces love in the heart. And that's what Christ saved you for. Now you ask, well, how is it there for though that faith actually in the gospel actually does produce love? Um, That's a great question. It's sort of been throughout Galatians there. Let me just review it to make sure we understand it. There's really two reasons. Number one, it's because it restores God to us as father. The gospel restores God to us as father. You see, as long as you think of God mainly as a judge, you're never really going to love him. Uh, You know that feeling you get when a state trooper pulls up behind you on the interstate? Even if his lights aren't on, but what's, what's, what's the emotion that you feel in your heart in that point? Is it love? No, it is, it's resentment. You're like, I wish he'd get behind somebody else. And you start slowing down, to, you know, and, and going too slow, and you get off of the next exit. That's what I do, because I just don't want him behind me. Now, I mean, no offense to you state troopers. We actually do love you deep down as people, but just not as state troopers. But the reason we feel like that, the reason we feel like that is because he acts or she acts as, as judge to me in that sense. And he's there to punish me if I do wrong. Well, see, that's how many of us feel about God. You're like, well, I wish he'd get behind somebody else. I wish he'd stop looking at me because I just know he's going to judge me. 
God wants you to learn to relate to him as father. And the only way you can do that is for him to remove himself as judge. And the way that he did that was by judging Jesus in your place so that there's no more judgment left for you. When my children know that I am, am kindly disposed to them, when they know my affection for them, they want to be around me. The gospel restores God to us as father. By the way, let me really quickly here deal with a myth that a lot of people seem to believe about God. They believe that God wants us to be scared of his judgment because then if we're scared of his judgment, then we'll be coerced to behave. It's like heaven is the carrot that God holds out in front of us and hell is the stick that he has behind us. And this is the way that he motivates us to obey. Um, Martin Luther called this the damnable doctrine of doubt, doubting whether, whether or not God you know, is gonna judge us. He said, it is true. It is true that when you're scared of God's judgment, it will produce, it will produce a surface level obedience. But underneath that thin veneer of obedience is gonna rage a heart of resentment and unbelief and anger toward God. He said, there is no way that you will actually learn to love God when you're scared of his judgment. Real love for God can only grow in the security of the love of God for you. Right? That's how God produces love. I mean, I think about it with my children. Um, uh, no father produces love in their children's heart for them by scaring them all the time or making them think that maybe they're not really there. I mean, imagine if I got ready to go on a trip and I got my kids together and said, hey, I just want you to know, dad's going on a trip. I'll be back in three or four days. I'll bring you, you know, gifts when I come back. Or maybe I'm not really your dad at all. Hmm? Maybe, maybe my real family lives somewhere else and this is all a big illusion. And so I want you to try to obey and try to earn daddy's coming back home. And if you are good enough, then maybe I'll come home and be your dad. You think it's gonna produce healthy children? No, it's gonna produce really dysfunctional psychopath children. It is the security of my love for them that helps them grow up as adults. And that's what Paul is saying is true about the gospel. God doesn't motivate us with the carrot of heaven or with the stick of hell. In fact, if you wanna know the gospel, the gospel is that God took the stick of hell and beat Jesus with it and then gave us the carrot of heaven that he deserved and gave it to us as a gift that we can only receive. That's the first way is he restores God does his father. The second thing is God puts his spirit of love inside of us. He puts the spirit of love inside of us and that spirit is so full of love that it just starts to exude out of you. Paul's point is you can experience the gospel. You just can't experience the gospel and not become a person overflowing with generosity and love. Uh, this might be a little cheesy, I admit it, but uh, a friend of mine told me about his seven-year-old little girl um, who, um, who came to faith in Christ. And uh, he, said, he said about a week or two later, after she had prayed this prayer and asked Jesus to come into her heart, um, she comes to me and, and she's had this look on her face and she said, Dad, I'm, I'm really confused. And uh, he said, why? He said, well, you know, last week you, we prayed and, and I asked Jesus to come in my heart and you told me that he did. He said, he said well, yeah. She said, well, Daddy, how, how tall is Jesus? And uh, he said, I don't know, he's a grown man. He's probably about my height. Well, Daddy, I mean, I'm a lot smaller. How tall am I? He's like, you're like three foot six. He's like, Daddy, if Jesus is as big as you and I'm me, shouldn't he just kind of stick out everywhere if he's in my heart? And her dad, my friend said, he goes, I knew I had my moment right there. Uh, and I was like, yes, he should. He should kind of stick out of every, but just not like you're thinking. It's just love for God and love for others will just become part of your life that will start to characterize you because Jesus Christ cannot be inside of you. His spirit cannot be in your heart without other people just seeing it everywhere. So Paul says then, verse 16, I say then, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Flesh right here 
is, a, is a kind of a confusing word in English. In Greek, it's the word sarx. We translate it flesh, but don't think of it as Paul saying the body is bad and the soul is good. The reason I know that is because in the list he's about to give us of what the flesh, the fruits of the flesh, he's going to list a bunch of things that have nothing to do with the body and have everything to do with the heart. And in another place, Paul is going to tell us to actually use our bodies to glorify God. So he's not saying that the body's bad, the soul is good. Uh, flesh or sarks, it simply means that part of you that is not yet brought underneath the control of the spirit, the part that the spirit has yet to fill with resurrection power and renew. And he says that part of you was always going to be at war with the spirit part for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other. They hate each other so that you can't actually do what you want to do. You've always got a war going on among you. Now, he says, the works of the flesh are obvious. He's going to give us a list of 16 different things here that characterize our flesh. They're kind of in three or four major groupings. The first three have to do with sexuality. Um, uh, he says sexual immorality, that's a Greek word, porneia, and it just means any sex outside of a man and woman in a marriage relationship, moral impurity. Um, uh, that is the word akatharsia, and it refers to things that are unnatural outside of God's original design for sex. Uh, promiscuity, um, uh, agelsia, that just means things that are out of control where you can't control your sexual desires. Um, the next two words that he uses are about religious corruption, idolatry, when you love something else more than you love God. Uh, sorcery is when you do things to try to manipulate God to be on your team, whether that's good luck charms or word of faith teaching or whatever it is. Uh, then he gives us eight words. Eight words that describe our relational conflicts, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Then he ends off the list with three words that refer to, let's just call it substance abuse, where you feel like you need a hit of something in order to stay alive. I got to have that dopamine release or I just feel bored and empty. So that might be drugs, might be alcohol, might be pornography, uh, might be likes on Facebook or impulsive shopping or I mean, you name it. I just got to have something because without that, I don't actually feel alive. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word practice there means not occasional lapses where you fall back into it, but it means a life that is defined where you pursue those things, where you just got to build a life around pursuing these. If you delight in these things, and if you are pursuing those 16 things, you have no part in the kingdom of God. All right, so do a little self-assessment here. Now he's going to give us another list, and these are the living fruits of the Spirit. All right, this is what the Spirit part of you is going to be like. The fruit of the Spirit is love. He's going to put this one first because love toward God and love toward others is the capstone of all of them and the one from which everything else flows. And then we got joy. Um, joy means joy or, or delight in God for the sheer beauty of his presence. The opposite of joy, by the way, is happiness. Happiness is, um, you know, happiness actually comes from the root, root word happening. So you are happy when the happenings of your life are what you want them to be. Joy is not based on the circumstances. Joy is based on God. In fact, you could almost say it like this. Um, happiness is based on the blessings. Joy is based on the blesser. So I've got joy because God is more of a treasure to me than anything else I would um, uh, have or not have. Peace is the ability to rest in the loving sovereignty 
of God's control over your life. Um, uh, patience, that's the ability to endure things that are painful and things that you don't want to go through and you do it without resentment or cynicism because you just trust that God has a good plan that he's working out through you. Kindness is a disposition toward other people that just wants to meet their needs. And when you see somebody in need, you want to help them with their need regardless of, of who they are or how they got there. Goodness means integrity. It's a Greek word that means integrity. You're just the same all the time, all the way through. You're not an opportunist who's always weighing out things and being really shrewd. You're just good. Faithfulness means the willingness to do what's right, even when it's hard, whether that means having a difficult conversation with somebody when it's unpopular, or that just means sticking by somebody when they're a pain and they're high maintenance and they're hard to get along with. Um, the next one here is gentleness. Um, that's a proutos is a Greek word for humility. Um, not so much uh, self-forgetfulness would be a good way of thinking about this one. In the immortal words of C.S. Lewis, a humble person, a proutos person is not somebody who thinks less of themselves, it's somebody who thinks of themselves less. Uh, you're just not that into you. You're gentle, you're thinking about other people, not you all the time. And then self-control is the ability to bring all of your urges and desires under the control of the will of God. There are nine things there, he said, that describe the character of the Christian. Then he concludes with, sort of in a cheeky way, the law is not against such things. In other words, um, in, in other words, in other words, people like that don't actually need laws. Nobody goes to jail for being too good or too kind or too self-controlled. It's when you're not those things, that's when you need a law. So what are you supposed to learn from those lists? Let me give you three kind of important reflections on that. Number one, number one, healthy fruit only comes from deep roots. This may be the most important one. You don't grow fruit by focusing on the fruits. Fruit happens naturally when the plant is alive and the roots are deep and healthy. You know, the first week of our series here, I said that some Christians approach spiritual growth and I compared it to stapling roses on a dead rose bush. If you got a dead rose bush, you don't fix it by going out and buying a dozen roses and stapling the roses on that dead rose bush. Well, in the same way, you won't grow spiritually by trying to add the fruits of the spirit onto your life. The way that you grow spiritually is by driving your roots deeper into Christ because as you come alive in him, the fruits will naturally appear. You don't get the fruits by thinking about the fruits, you get the fruits by thinking about the roots. The more you embrace his love and promise in the gospel, the more that spiritual fruits will appear naturally in your life. I actually think there's a great analogy here with, um, with uh, physical fruit, uh, like uh, a man and a wife in marriage. Um, uh, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, and they produce children. I have four children. Um, when my wife and I conceived those children, we were not thinking about the children, right? You weren't thinking about the biology of it all. And man, I really hope, you know, she has blonde hair and blue eyes. I hope it's a girl. I hope it's a, well, you weren't thinking about any of that. We were thinking about each other. I got caught, we got caught in a moment of loving intimacy with one another. And the fruit of that is a child. You follow what I'm saying? You're not thinking about the child, you're thinking about them. And as I get caught up in loving intimacy with her, well, the offspring of that is a child. That is an analogy that God built into that process for how we develop spiritual fruit. You don't develop spiritual fruit by thinking about love, joy, peace, kindness. You develop those things by getting caught up in loving intimacy with Jesus Christ. And as you are lovingly intimate with Jesus Christ, and as your soul is enraptured with him, that is when all those things will grow as naturally on you as roses do on a rose bush. 
You see, some of you are, producing, are, are pursuing exactly the wrong strategy when it comes to spiritual growth. Already this morning, you've done it. I've been going through this list and you're like, oh, I'm so bad. I got no love, I got no joy, I got no patience, I got no kindness. I need to, you know what, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna work on patience this week. I'm gonna be Mr. Pa- I'm just gonna think about nine different ways. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be patient this afternoon with my kids. And all, around you, all of us can hear, if we listen, we can hear, we can hear you trying to staple this thing onto your dead rose bush of a heart. What you should be doing this morning is looking at Jesus instead of yourself. And what you ought to be saying is not, I got no patience. What you ought to be saying is, man, thank God in Christ, I am righteous. Because he has said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, I've been chosen before the foundation of the world. I've been predestined to bring forth fruit and give him glory. In Christ, I've been appointed to be an overcomer. I can do all things, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. In Christ, I'm precious to him. In fact, I'm so precious, he knows when a single hair falls from my head. In Christ, he tells me I'm no longer a servant, I'm a son. I am not a slave, I'm a friend of God. I am not an orphan anymore. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. My name has been written down down in the Lamb's book of life, and I've been filled with all the fullness of God. I've been blessed to be a blessing. I've been predestined for good works that I should go and walk in them. And when you drive your roots deeper into those truths, then fruit will come as naturally as roses do on a living rose bush. Amen? All right, amen. Look, say it this way, say it this way. For every one look you take at yourself, bemoaning your fruitlessness, take 10 looks at Christ boasting in his faithfulness. For every one look you take at your pitiful life that is not having fruits of the Spirit in it, you ought to take 10 looks at Jesus Christ and boast in his faithfulness because that list I just went through right there didn't have anything to do with you. All those things that God did, he did. And as you believe the promise that God will bring life out of something barren, then at that point you are becoming a child of promise and you're not turning back to Hagar. Here's the second truth. You are only as mature as your most most immature fruit, this is going to be painful, all right? If you're reading this list and you're paying attention, one of the first questions you have is, Paul uses what looks like a singular word, fruit, fruit is, and then he gives a list of nine things. And you're like, Paul, did you forget? That's not good subject verb agreement. Fruit, maybe it should be fruits are, and then list the nine things. You follow what I'm saying? Why did Paul use a singular word to describe the nine different things. Well, it's because these are not separate virtues that you staple onto your life. These are the collective evidence of Christ in you. They are one singular fruit. If he is in you, then they all start to appear, which means, listen, you are only as mature as your most immature fruit because that shows you where and how much you actually believe the gospel. You see, sometimes we confuse personality traits for spiritual fruits. For example, we see some Christian who's just more stoic by nature. And so we look at them and we say, now that person, man, she has got patience. Yet they're not joyful or kind, or maybe there, there is some Christian who's really gentle and kind to others, but you know, they never really tell people about Jesus. Or maybe you got somebody who likes to argue about Jesus and they're just a debater. And so they're always out there trying to tell people about Jesus and win them over to our point of view, but they're not really kind people. That means that these things are all likely just personality traits, not gospel fruit. Where Jesus is, all the fruits grow as one. When Jesus is there, you will be bold and kind, gentle and compassionate, patient and joyful. Therefore, I can confidently say that you are only as mature as your most immature fruit. 
And so when you observe an area where you are weak, that is an area where you have yet to really let the gospel shape that part of your life. We talk here at the Summit Church all the time about going out on mission trips, taking the gospel to unreached places. And that's awesome. We're going to keep doing that. But I want you to also be aware that there are a bunch of unreached people groups in your heart. Parts of you that have not been brought under the control of the gospel. And those are the places where you have no spiritual fruit. And so what you've got to do is send out little gospel emissaries all into those unreached parts of your heart and say, here's what the gospel says. And this is how I should change as a result of it. I'll give you two really quick action steps on this. One, that's why I tell you, you got to pray the gospel over your life every single day. That's why in the mornings I will go through those four phrases of the gospel prayer I gave you a few weeks ago. By the way, we'll have it for you again when you leave today at all of our campuses, where I just try to get my mind saturated in the gospel because I want that root deep so that the fruits will just come alive in me. Second application I give you is that's why you need to be in a small group. I'm not saying that because we want to beef up our small group numbers. I'm saying that because that's the only way that you'll ever learn to apply the gospel to these places. I can't do it from up here because I, I can't talk to everybody about your particular situation. Uh, you know, the, the analogy that I use to describe, you know, like it's, it's basically like you coming and thinking that just listening to me will produce spiritual fruit in you is like trying to clean out your room with a leaf blower. You might blow some of the big dust off and I don't know, maybe even blow some of your laundry out of the way, but you're never really going to get it clean. You need a deep clean. You got to move stuff and wipe behind it if you really want to clean it. Well, see what I do is I come in here and I blow a lot of air at you and I, you know, yell a lot and make a lot of noise. But if you really want to see the gospel saturate you, you got to have people in your life that can help you move stuff and look behind it and say, yeah, that's an area of the gospel hasn't really conquered you. That's why we say you ought to be in a small group. Um, here's a third, a third implication here. Um, and this is also really important. Walking in the spirit is the way to avoid the lust of the flesh, not vice versa. Do you see the verse? I say then walk by the spirit and then you will not, certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Notice the order of the two. Because we always want to flip them, don't we? If you avoid the lust of the flesh, oh, well then the spirit of God will live inside you. But Paul says, no, you got the order wrong. The only way you can ever avoid the lust of the flesh is by walking in the spirit. And in fact, the word for desire here, um, the, the word for desire um, is the Greek word epithumia. And the word is it's a great word. It means an inordinate craving that drives your life. It means something that you just are so desperate for, you feel like you can't live without that. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I told um, about how in the Garden of Eden, the first result of our sin was that we felt naked? Remember that? And the reason we felt naked was prior to that moment, we'd felt clothed in the love and the acceptance of God. And then having been stripped of that, now our soul felt naked. And I asked, what do naked people do? Naked people, normal naked people try to find clothing. They want to be covered because you don't want to be exposed. And this is a picture of how we go throughout our lives is that we feel spiritually naked and vulnerable. And so we're looking for something to replace what God used to be to us. Blaise Pascal famously called it a vacuum, a God-shaped vacuum in our heart that we spend our whole lives trying to figure out what goes in that vacuum. And we're like, oh, is it relationships? Is it fame? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it, what is it? And none of it works because that vacuum is in the shape of God. And what Paul is saying is it's only when you get God back in the right place, it's only then that you're gonna be able to say no to the lust of the flesh because until you do that, it's just too strong. It's too much of a craving. Again, some of you are pursuing the wrong strategy when it comes to growing spiritually. You're trying to limit sin in your life when what you ought to be doing is trying to grow your sense of the love and the presence of God in your life. 
Now, one of the best analogies that um, I use for this and, um, uh, goes back a few years ago. It happened here at the church where a group of um, college-age guys, UNC Chapel Hill guys, asked me to come and do a Bible study for them at their fraternity. And uh, I, uh, by the way, some of you are like, I've heard this story like 30 times. I know because in the front leaf of my Bible, I have fraternity story. It has 29 marks by it, and this is going to be the 30th time. Well, let me just tell you something. Have you noticed in the, how repetitive Paul is in the book of Galatians? Have you? Uh, he, like every fourth verse, he makes the same point. I feel like if he can do that, I can use the same illustration every fourth week, okay? So just back off a little bit, all right? So fraternity, um, guys, um, asked me to come to a Bible study. And I'm like, well, so I asked them, like, what do you want me to do it on? They said, sexual temptation. I'm like, that's a shocker. I didn't see that one coming. Um, and so uh, I go there to their fraternity house, and there's a bunch of guys sitting around this room. And, um, and so I start talking about sexual temptation, and I offhandedly make the comment that you could turn sexual desire on and off like a light switch. And one of the guys looks at me, he's like a 20-year-old. He looks at me and he's like, what? He's like, you're crazy. I said, no, you can turn it off. He's like, man, I knew that you changed when you got older. But I didn't know that when you turned 40, that's what you would, you would say something like that. And I was like, man, even for you at 20 years old, you could turn off your sexual desire like a light switch. He said, you, you're out of your mind. I said, I'll prove it to you. I will prove it to you. I said, he said, okay. I said, all right. So imagine you're with your, you know, whatever girlfriend and you're at her apartment and you guys are all by yourself and one thing starts leading to another. I don't know what y'all call it anymore because I'm not cool um, anymore. But in, when I was in college, it had something to do with a baseball diamond. And so, you know, as, you're, as one thing is leading to another, you pass what in college um, they used to call the point of no return. At that point, your desire is at its most intense and train has left the station. And they're all nodding their heads like, that's what we're talking about. It is impossible to come back from that point. That's the point of no return. I'm like, all right, all right. In that moment right there, in the most intense moment of your passion, at the point of no return, suddenly into that room walks that girl's Navy SEAL father who's just gotten back from Afghanistan. Bam, off like a light switch. (laughs) And this kid goes, he goes, yeah, that's a good point. And I said, all right, what happened? What, did you lose all your attraction for women? No, it's that in that moment, your attraction for her got outweighed by a larger desire. <laughs> the desire to stay alive, the desire to keep all the members of your body attached to your body, whatever. It's just like, I, I don't, it, it's that this lesser desire, as intense as it is, sexual desire got outweighed by a stronger desire It's what the old Puritans used to call the expulsive power of a new affection, the ability for a driving passion to limit all the lesser passions. And so I told him, I said, you know, your problem, guys, is that not that your sexual desires are too strong, it's that your sense of the presence of God is so weak. Because if God's love was as real to you as that Navy SEAL father was, not in terms of judgment, but it's in terms of who he is and his love, then you'd be able to control all these things. You see, the focus you have is wrong. You've been thinking about how to limit sin and what you need to think about doing is growing in the love of God and how is the power of the Spirit released in you? Well, it's like we learned throughout this book of Galatians, you, you grow in it by daily believing that it is finished. By believing there's nothing you could do that would make God love you more, nothing you have done that makes him love you less. The first time you believed it is finished, you were released from the penalty of sin. Every time you believe it from here on out, you are released from the power of sin. 
The more you soak yourself in the love of Jesus, the more the Spirit of God begins to radiate from your life and the more fruit naturally appears. Why? Because you can't experience Jesus and not develop these things. In fact, go back through that list and just think about it. Aren't these things the best description of Jesus you'll ever read? Jesus is love. He's love. In fact, he so loved you that he came and he died on a cross to purchase you when you were his enemy and when you turned his back on you. Jesus is joy. And the reason we know that is because he came from heaven to earth when he had joy and he gave it all up and went to a cross so he could purchase us because he made us his joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and Jesus left his Father's peace so that he could come and and die for us to give us peace. Jesus is patience. How many times could Jesus have turned back? How many times could he have walked away from me? But he never gave up, never. He just was patient, Um, kindness. He never turned anybody away in the Gospels who came to him with a need. And he's never turned me away. Um, Goodness, he is full of integrity. He's the same all the time. God is good all the time and all the time he's good. Faithfulness means that he did the hard thing even when it was difficult to save us, when it was difficult to speak the truth. He spoke it and he did it and he never gave up. Gentleness, was there any other better example of somebody who thought less about their needs and their wants and more about our own? Paul would say, let this mind be in you, which was in him, who considered not his home needs, but ours, um, gentleness, self-control, self-control. He brought all of these things under control of what God wanted in the moment. At any point, he could have called a legion of angels to deliver him, but he controlled himself because he was doing this to save us. You see, this is a list of what Jesus is for you, which means that if you're going to memorize that list, don't memorize it as a list of nine things that you need to go do. Memorize it as a list of nine things that Jesus was for you, and now this Jesus is in you. And when you focus on Jesus as the fulfillment of that, then you'll see these things begin to grow naturally like fruit does on a fruit tree or roses do on a rose bush. So see, let's return to that statement of Luther's that I started with, because this is what the whole Reformation was about. Listen to this. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. It is so certain of God's favor in Christ because of what Christ has done. It's so certain of that, that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in God's grace. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and with all other creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. This means fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness. Because of faith, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Thus, it's just as impossible to separate faith and works as it would be to separate heat and light from fire. That is the truth that revolutionized the world in 1517. And I'm telling you, it can revolutionize your life today. It is the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't see any of these fruits in your life, then the answer is to believe it. That God has done everything necessary to save you and you can only receive it as a gift. And when you do, your faith is credited as righteousness and spiritual life is infused into your heart. And once you have experienced that, You just keep believing it. You keep believing the promise. You stay away from Hagar and you keep believing the promise because that's where fruitfulness comes. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses. Bow your heads. Have you ever received Christ? Have you ever believed the gospel for yourself? 
If you ever personally trusted Christ as your Savior, if not, do that right now. In this very moment, do it. Say, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. I trust you. I believe that you did everything necessary to save me. I receive that as a gift right now. Come into my life. Be my Lord. I surrender all of my life to you. If you know you've already done that, then right now, maybe what you ought to do is just thank God. Say, God, thank you that your acceptance of me is not based on how well I keep these spiritual fruits. Thank you that you were all these things for me and that my acceptance is settled in you and rejoice in the grace of the gospel in Christ alone. In Christ alone, you were saved. In Christ alone, you are given all the promises. Thank you, God, for these things in Jesus' name.